0: Welcome to the Lead Me On podcast, where you will receive practical solutions for extraordinary leadership. I'm your host, Lori King-Taylor. For more than 25 years, I've been educating and coaching individuals who want to transform the way they lead. Join me each week for inspiring conversations to help you increase your capability to lead with greater impact and influence. Get ready, it's time to Lead Me On. Hello and welcome back to the Lead Me On podcast. I am so excited about our guest today. His name is Don Catterback. He has been a dear friend of mine for many years and he has to be one of the coolest guys I know. So I'll tell you just a little bit about Don. He has 20 years in the United States Air Force Aviation. He was a test pilot school graduate, so that just makes him a little crazy right there. He has right. degrees in aerospace engineering from Georgia Tech and from the University of Alabama and a variety of aerospace projects at companies like Gulfstream, SpaceX, Dynetics, NASA, Relativity, Blue Origin, and now he is in pursuit of a reusable hypersonic Aircraft at Hermes Corporation in Atlanta, Georgia. So Don, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk to us a little bit today.
1: You bet. I appreciate it. Thanks for that introduction. This should be fun.
0: Yes. Well, you are one of the coolest guys I know and probably one of the craziest I know as well. So I think we're going to be able to really get some cool information from you today.
1: Well, I hope so. My niece called me the cool uncle a few weeks ago and I had to correct her. I said, I'm pretty much your nerd from Georgia Tech, but I just got to do cool things and I've been very fortunate in my career. Very, very lucky. So let's dive into it.
0: Let's do it. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to interview you on the podcast is because you have done some really cool things in your time and have been in positions of leadership in those cool and stressful times like the cockpit of a fighter jet or doing test pilots. So today we're going to talk a little bit about leadership lessons in high-performance teams when there's high stake situations involved. There are some really important aspects of building and maintaining high-performance teams especially when you add stress to those. There's a lot of risk involved in what you've done in the past. That makes things even more difficult. So tell us a little bit about your philosophy of leadership. Let's just get started there.
1: Okay. Well, I think the the biggest things I've learned over the years is the two elements of building high performance teams and then maintaining them because it's not good enough just to you know to build them more you got to maintain them and you got to maintain them for the long run especially when with some of these projects that require continuity right so the two most important factors i've found are, are trust and healthy conflict um, and it's something i have been kind of picking up and learning through uh, my time in the Air Force but there is no better factor than trust. Uh, You have to have that so that you can have the healthy conflict. And what I mean by healthy conflict is uh, be able to speak your mind, be candid. A lot of people hold things in and you never get that trust to where you feel like you can tell it like it is or, as I've learned over the years, Tell it like you think it is because it's not always the way, you know, it is. But, you know, it, it definitely is the way you think it is. And there's some other elements. I saw a great model of this years ago in the five dysfunctions of a team. Um, where trust and healthy conflict. We're the building blocks. And there's other things like accountability, commitment, and results, right? But I contend that if you have the trust and the healthy conflict, the rest will follow. Then as a leader, you've got to find that talent that is a high-performance team and if you can build a trust, make sure everybody is adhering to healthy conflict and get out of the way a lot of times, sometimes we struggle with just getting out of the way, they'll amaze you and they'll do great things. But that's kind of my philosophy. And I've, I've learned over the years, there are no bad teams or just bad leaders. And if you put those things into effect, it'll happen.
0: So I want to talk about the trust issue for just a minute. Mm-hmm. I teach Pat Lanchonis. Five Behaviors of a Cohesive Team, even throughout, no matter what I teach when it comes to management or leadership, we always talk about the trust factor. And I'm dealing with some clients now talking about the trust factor. How do you build that trust? And what happens when you lose it? Can you rebuild it?
1: Wow, that is a loaded question and probably the best one. Um, a lot of folks ask this. I've had folks that have been leaders that have been extremely dynamic and successful. When I tell them trust is the most important factor, they always ask me that question. Well, how do you build trust? And then they, you know, they're kind of playing. I'm going to get you. And one of the best ways is you got to know your people, and you've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. Integrity is huge as a leader uh, in building trust. Because you ever lie to somebody and they catch you and you destroy that trust, getting it back is much, much, much harder than just maintaining it once you have it. So you've got to do that most importantly. And the team doesn't need you to win every battle, but they most certainly have to trust you to fight a lot of them. You can't win them all, and you shouldn't win them all. There's a lot of checks and balances within a corporation or a military unit that requires executives like the CEO to make some really hard decisions. But you've got to be in there fighting for them. One of the greatest questions I ever had, an executive I worked for at a company called SpaceX, she asked me, well, Don, how do you know they trust you? I said, I ask them. It's that simple. And the the answer I always get back is, well, they can lie to you. They cannot tell you the truth. And I said, no, they can't. Not if I get to know them and I'm sitting across the table from them. The body language will tell you. And if they do that, uh yeah, I, I trust you. Well, no, there was a pause there. But if there's no pause and they immediately, yes, I trust you. And here's why. Cause I asked them the next question. Well, why do you trust me? And if they can give me that answer, you have established a trust. Now don't lose it at that point. Mm-hmm. But here's my follow on question. I always ask them, do I trust you? Ooh. And then they're asking about this big.
0: <laughs> Good question.
1: <laughs> right. Right. You know, Cause you see the wheels turning, right? You see the, the, you know, the eyes kind of go up and they start looking and they start asking that question. Do I trust him and, or does he trust me? And I said, you should know that by now. And if you don't know that, we need to maybe restructure our one-on-ones because if you don't know, I trust you by the way I do my job and I lead, I block and tackle, I provide resources, I mentor, I coach, uh, then we got another problem.
0: I can only imagine how much trust comes into play in a situation where you're in a combat type situation, or I guess you have to trust the people that built that aircraft that you're about to test pilot. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What were some of the biggest lessons you learned? During those times?
1: Uh, There's a lot of them. A great movie came out not too long ago, Top Gun, right? Maverick. And there's, if you just break that down, and there's a lot of people probably shaking their head and giving me this right now because they can't believe I brought up that movie in something like this, but there's a lot of great examples of what it takes in a a team like that, especially if you bring a team together that they kind of know each other. And here's the beauty of the military. A lot of times you follow each other from assignment to assignment. So you've got a lot of years that you've had to build trust. And you have to trust these people. You have to trust the guy in the front seat or the back seat of a fighter, that, like the one behind me. Or you've got to trust your wingman. And sometimes, you know, that's hard to do. And you might not necessarily like that individual, but you certainly need to build the trust and make sure that they know what you're going to do in a high-stress situation.
0: Let me stop you right there. Because Mm -hmm. you just said something that I think, important to hone in on a little bit. You said you may not like the individual, but you need to learn to trust the individual. How hard is it to trust somebody you don't like? And how do you go about trusting someone who you just may not like as a human?
1: I mean it head on. I don't believe in passive aggressive behavior. I don't believe in hiding anything. Uh, I believe that if you truly want to be a high-performing team, and there's somebody you don't like, you got to get in a room and you got to tell them, hey, man, we don't see eye to eye, but we have to work together. So how are we going to do that? And you have to extend the first olive branch to that individual. And, oh, by the way, they may smack that olive branch out of your hand the first time, but that does not give you the right to walk away as a leader, as somebody who's uh, in a fighter jet looking to protect the country or in charge of a test team at, say, Hermia's. You don't get to, as an executive, as a vice president, to walk away from that situation. It is your job to learn to trust them and learn to give them your trust and have them trust you. Is it easy? No. Does it take a lot of sometimes drudgery and, and hard work? Yes. But it is worth it in the end. And I've had examples of that where I had folks come into a squadron and we didn't like each other. And I told that individual many years ago at U. safety headquarters, eh, we're going to be best friends in a month. And he looked at me like I was nuts and told me no effing way, you know. So we did. We actually became good friends, and we learned to trust each other, even though we didn't like each other's personality. And uh, to this day, we stay in contact.
0: So what's your strategy for doing that?
1: uh, A lot of it is just slow, again, walking the walk and talking the talk, which somebody realizes you have high integrity and they can count on you, whether you like them or not, it happens. Period. It's human nature. There's no way. Even if you really don't like that person, but that person's done really good things for you. And one of those other models, other than the five dysfunctions of a team, is called the five levels of leadership. And I know you've looked at that one, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it starts out, people follow you because you're on an org chart, right? Well, it gets to the top, and they follow you because of who you are. Mm -hmm. And there's three or four degrees in between, right? Mm -hmm. So at some point, they follow you, and they are your friend because of who you are, not just because you're on an org chart. And the way you've built that is you've done something for the organization that has been extra special. You do something for them. And when you find out you do something for your neighbor or your colleague and they know you don't like them, well, they realize where you're coming from and they can't help but to either follow you or support you.
0: Oh, I love that. What techniques have you used or techniques that you have for getting the most out of high performers on your team? And notice I said high performers.
1: Yeah. Well, one, you have to you have to get those high performers on your team. So talent density—that's kind of the new buzzword I've heard a lot. You got to get that talent density, and then you can't tolerate mediocre behavior. So when you have a high performing team and you tolerate mediocrity or bad behavior, uh, that's a killer. That's got to go right away. You've got to exit those individuals. Uh, you've either got to turn them around and coach them, or you got to exit them. And if you tolerate that behavior, uh, the high performing team is going to suffer. Uh, they won't respect you either. So again, high integrity, get the talent density, make sure you keep the talent density by exiting folks who are trying to hurt the team. And some do it passively and some do it actively. Here's one of the biggest is empower and get out of the way. And you've got to be able to do it. You've got to allow them to make mistakes sometimes. So uh, many years ago, I had a uh, young major enter my office and, and said, Hey, Crash, um, we got a problem. What do, you, what do you want me to do? And he breaks down the problem. I said, well, what are you going to do? He goes, I don't know. The last guy didn't ask me that. I said, well, I'm asking you that. Get out of my office and come back and tell me how you're going to handle the problem. So, you know, an hour later, he comes back. I got a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I said, okay, that's great. Do that. And he goes, is that the right answer? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right answer because I'm good, but I'm going to empower you and I'm going to let you go ahead and do that. And he goes, okay, well, let me ask another question. Is that the way you do it? I'm like, no. But I'm not you and your way may work just as well as mine. So let's give it a try. And let me tell you, he wasn't real keen on going out and trying that because he really wanted just somebody to tell him how to do it. And that's not how we build leaders. That is not how uh, we find our replacements, which we should be doing on day one.
0: So let's say his didn't work. How do you handle that?
1: We take a look at why it didn't work. So we break it down. Could it have worked at a different time? Could it have worked in a different situation? Just because it doesn't work now in that particular context with those particular people doesn't mean it won't work in the in the future, which is why I always hate it when people go, oh, we tried that. Well, well, can we try it again? Because that was a different time. You know, we didn't have the money or we didn't have the resources or it was a different piece of hardware. Maybe it will work now. Tell me why it won't. But to answer your question is we would break down what did we do Um, Did we apply the the solution technique correctly? And then where did it go wrong? And could we have foreseen it and stopped it? And what would we do next time? And then here's almost what happens every time is we find out it wasn't the right solution, but the solution that it should have been pops up. It just pops out of it naturally and we go on. But if we never made a decision and we never implemented the solution, we wouldn't have got the boat out of the harbor. Mm -hmm. It'd be still sitting there docked. Mm -hmm. So you got to get moving.
0: Well, I know it goes back to the trust issue. One of the things I talk a lot about in leadership training is that they have to trust that if you are empowering them to make a decision, you are not going to throw them under the bus or fire them or humiliate them in front of other people. They have to be able to trust that they can go make those decisions and come back and learn from it.
1: And you're pulling on a a very good thread. There's a lot of folks in in corporate America that would love to see you fail or they would love to use you as the scapegoat. And that's that's happened to me before. But again, it's the integrity. You know, years later, folks will call me or want to come work for me or work with me or have me work for them because of that integrity. So you cannot violate that trust. You've got to take responsibility for the failures because it is your fault. Mm -hmm. You're the one that empowered them. You're the one that said, go do it the way you want to go do it. You just have to make those decisions and and hopefully not let it get too out of control. One of the best commanders I ever had called me in his office right before we got started, and he said, Crash, we got a really tough, high-stress job to do, but you're not going to be successful if you don't make mistakes. So I want you to get out of my office and go make mistakes starting now. And I'm like, what do you mean go make mistakes? But he was serious. He says, you know, if you don't make any decisions and you don't do anything, you won't make any mistakes. Well, we need to do things. Because we do have a high risky job, but the payoff is huge if we get out there and make decisions and execute. And he was true to his word. Now I will say this. He said, um, if you make a really big one, please let me know before the wing commander finds out. And again, true to his word, he blocked and tackled for me. He protected me. But we did some amazing things in that squadron that a lot of it I can't talk about because it's classified. But trust me, we did some amazing things because I was allowed to make mistakes and he backed me up.
0: I can imagine, though, the one mistake he didn't want you to make was to probably crash that really expensive machine.
1: <laughs> no. Um, that... <laughs> Even
0: with the eject button.
1: <laughs> no, you try not to. But I tell you, you know, test pilots years ago in the Chuck Yeager days and the Century Series fighters, it was, you know, kick the tires like the fires and go. And we lost a lot of test pilots. So today's kind of risk-adverse situation, you, you don't want a pendulum to swing all that way. You do have to manage risk. And that's the things I think test pilots do a good job of is managing risk because they've been in those high stress positions. They've had techniques. They know how to compartmentalize and focus on what's important at the right moment. And that's really how you get through those really tough things. Is You don't eat the whole elephant, right? Mm-hmm. You break it down into little pieces and then you attack each one and you do it in such a way. Again, back to Top Gun. You know, they didn't say, hey, uh, launch from the carrier, attack the target. No, there was a series of steps that they had to go through, some very high-stress situations all the way up to not only hitting the target, but getting back out. And that's how fighter pilots and test pilots do that. We break it down into its parts, and we practice, and we rehearse, and we train until it's second nature. And then there's those things that in the heat of the battle and the high stress, the things you don't have to think about, it's in the back here, Those things go pretty smoothly, and you're hoping that you can limit the number of decisions you have to make in those very tactical high-stress situations.
0: I love that point, is that you spend a lot of time going through the scenario, going Mm -hmm. through the simulator, right? You probably spend a lot of time in simulators thinking about the situation and going through it over and over again. And and we can think, well, yeah, of course, you're going to do that if you're in a fighter jet, right? But how does that apply? How can we do that in a corporate environment.
1: Same way, quite honestly. Every single problem we have to solve or everything single thing that we have to do in the corporate world has a series usually incremental steps that we can break it down into its constituent parts and either assign it to people or the team goes through each step, you know, sequentially. And and sometimes, you know, you can paralyze ops and you want to to bring the schedule down. Usually it's it's a schedule pressure more than anything in the corporate world, right? Because if you're not adapting, someone's going to beat you there. So you definitely want to be stay agile and find uh, ways of parallelizing ops, as they call it. But there's basic steps and then focus and get your best people on those incremental steps. And then the the entire picture usually comes together. That's just one technique that I've seen that works over and over again, because when it's such a complex thing, one of your things as a leader is to make it less complex, make it to where it looks easy and train to where you look like an Olympic athlete when you're executing.
0: Do you think in a corporate type atmosphere, doing some forward thinking, thinking about what could be coming down the pike and preparing for that and spending some time in the war room type thing, mm-hmm. kind of going through scenarios and preparing yep. for what might could come?
1: That's imperative. We talked a little bit about schedule stuff because schedule is like almost the driving factor in many corporate situations. Uh, but I like to make it event driven. And that way it allows you to think more strategically. You can go ahead and make a schedule because you have to, and you have to meet milestones and deadlines. But if you look at your strategic planning as event-driven, like if this happens, what do we do? And you do a lot of what-if drills. And, you know, I'm in the middle of that right now. Uh, there's so many different ways the hypersonic challenge can go. Um, but we got to know that. And we look forward to, if this happens, what direction do we need to go to stay viable and still get the mission done. So there is a lot of strategic planning, and it should be something your VPs and above are doing. There's a lot of down and in. We'd love to stay with our first team because it's what we're comfortable with and and then go in, but we can't. we got to go out and we got to go strategic as much as we can when you get to that executive level of vice president or above. You can't keep staying tactical all the time. But again hire the right people to stay tactical and get those things done.
0: I'm a big advocate of hire slow, fire fast. How do you, I see you going.
1: Yeah, trying to figure out where you're going with this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fire slow to make sure you're getting the right people, right? Yes. Fire fast to make sure that if you have one of those people that are poisoning the team, Are poison to the team, get them out quickly. We tend to have all this that we have to go through to be able to move somebody out. How do you handle that kind of situation?
1: I don't accept it takes a long time to move people out. And it sounds crass, right? It sounds like, well, you just don't care about those people. That's wrong. I do care about the team. And if someone's not performing well, Maybe they're not in the right spot. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, I give them the pink slip and they're out on the door two days before Christmas. It means that should not be a surprise to that individual, number one. You've had these discussions and you don't just spring it on them. And then you look to find the right spot for them. If you really care about your people, you don't just fire. You go, hey, here's maybe a better way for you to go. But this is not working on this team right now. And again, what you find is if you can take that, if you can have the empathy, And you have the bandwidth to go and help those people. And if you don't have the bandwidth, you better find somebody who's got the bandwidth to take care of those people. Your high-performing team's going to appreciate that, too. I I can't tell you. I can give you multiple examples where I had one of the highest-performing technician or engineer on a team exit the company, and morale went up. And I'm like, what just happened? And what you don't know as the strategic or executive leader, because you really didn't dive deep down all the way down into the folks that are turning the wrenches, is that that person, although did very well technically, uh, was a poison to the team. Uh, They would badmouth their supervisors when you left. They would badmouth you when you left. When you left the room, you know, they would talk real nice to you to your face. And then as soon as you left the room, they would start uh, cutting into you and their supervisors and their teammates and, yeah, they could uh, the best wrench turner in the world, but they could not operate in a team. And, again, I've let people go, and morale immediately improved. So that taught me something. It also taught me to, to get rid of people fast who are are bringing the team down. But it also said, you have got – they didn't trust me enough. They did not trust me enough to come to me and tell me that that person was a problem. And that, that hit me hard. I made extra time to do skip-level meetings to get down as far as I needed to go to where the trust uh, was throughout the entire organization and not just one or two levels down from, uh, you know, whatever current position I was in. So uh, you said
0: skip-level skip meetings. What is a skip-level meeting?
1: Skip-level meetings where, for instance, I've got directors that report to me as a, a VP. So I mainly uh, engage directors on a day-to-day basis. Well, I need to get down into the managers and the supervisors. And the individual technicians or engineers that are designing or turning wrenches or making the real mission happen. Those are the people that are actually getting it done. And you need to know the organization down to that level. Now, do you have to be the person that always does that? No, but you better have a a good enough relationship with their supervisors to understand where the morale issues are and what's causing your team to be high performing and what's detracting from it. That's your responsibility.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Lead Me On podcast. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue our conversation with Don Catterback on high performance teams in high stress situations. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, I would so appreciate a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. If you're interested in knowing more about upcoming events or working with me personally to transform the way you lead, visit my website at TrinityPerformanceSolutions.com. Until next week.